chapter 9. We're going to keep uh, plugging along here where we're at in our study of the book of Romans. And uh, we are in uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11 here, the third section of the book. And uh, as we come to it, we're down in the second objection that's raised uh, by those that are uh, in, in Paul's day, in the, in historically, the, the Jews, uh, Israel. And uh, when you think about um, us today, as we begin to talk about the issues of the word rightly divided and the issue dispensational truth, uh, these objections then get raised by the religionist crowd. So these are real ob objections. They're critical to understand. They're critical to, to go through and to know. We've seen the first one it, uh, in chapter 9, uh, there, verse number 3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, and that's the issue. Israel's status today in the age of grace has been changed. Uh, they're no longer uh, God's favored people. And when you say that, people kind of go, huh? What do you mean? You know, all, all of the Old Testament, over, a little over 1,500 years, Israel was God's people. And now Paul and, you know, us today in the age of grace say, not anymore, not so anymore. And so objections get raised. And the first one starts there in verse number 6, where he says, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect. And that issue of, well, wait a minute, if you say that God has accursed Israel, accursed just simply means cut off, set aside. Uh, not what the theologians always tend to say, well, cursed them, damned to hell, and, and no, they're not. They're just been set aside, interrupted, Okay. Uh, temporarily set aside. Actually, in chapter 11, if you flip over there, verse 25, Paul says it. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That issue of blindness in part. So the objection is, well, wait a minute then, God's word must not be, must be unreliable, can't, can't be held. And Paul answers that and says, no, they, uh, uh, 9-6, for they that are not all Israel which are of Israel. And he begins to lay out the fact that God's word has been working all along. It's just been working in a manner that Israel doesn't care for. They don't like the fact that he's chosen a seed line, a special nation to carry on and to do. And Paul goes through that and that issue there of Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, and, and so forth. So God's word is working. So it is reliable. And then really here in the second objection starts in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And again, the second objection here isn't talking about that they're the character of God being unrighteous, because they know he's a righteous God, but rather he's not being fair with us, with Israel. Uh, and if you, by the way, back up to verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. What are they calling Paul? 
a liar. That's, you're, you're wrong. You're, what do they call you and I when we talk to folks about understanding the word rightly divided? You're a liar. You're chopping up this. You're doing that. And, and reality isn't that at all. Reality is just recognizing where, where God and how God is operating today so that you and I understand where we're to go to get our information on how to live and, so, and function. Verse 14 what they're really saying here is, is he's being unfair. Now, I'll be honest with you, never ask God to be fair with you. Because what do you deserve? Well, you deserve, you're a sinner, you deserve hell and the lake of fire. That's what you deserve. But rather what he's going to do, Paul does, verse 15, for he saith to, to Moses... Paul once again goes back in Israel's history, just as he did with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and with Rachel and, and Jacob. He now goes back to Moses. And he goes back to Moses after the Exodus, to Exodus 33. And we did this last week. And he goes through that issue here of, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have mercy compassion so then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy and what Paul's doing is is look remember Israel because again they're the ones raising the objections he's talking to them hey remember your condition in your past here in Exodus 33 they have broken the law they have broken the covenant agreement that they made with God God has every right, and we looked at this in Exodus 33, he's got every right to consume them. They have an agreement. The agreement is, if I obey, then I'll bless you. If you obey, I'll bless you. But if you don't, I'll curse you. And he's ready to consume them. And Moses steps in and reminds the Lord of the covenant, the agreement that, that he's made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and says, Let's, you know, let's remember this. So he, God pulls out the, uh, an, an escape clause. And really, he, the escape clause is himself. He's a merciful God. He's a compassionate God. So he looks at it and says, okay, Israel, I could nail you. I could, you know, I have every right to do that, but instead I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else with you. And he chose to exercise a component of himself, who he is. So Paul is telling Israel, he's telling us today, if God can be merciful to a rebellious people that he had every right to consume, then you know what he can be? Merciful to a people, the Gentiles, who belong to Satan, who've been turned over to Satan, and who are doomed. You go read Ephesians 2, the first three verses, and where we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're the children of disobedience and the children of wrath, and we're all underneath that issue of the, of the, of the course of the world. He says, I can do this. So Israel should not have been shocked when Paul stood up and said, hey, Israel, this is your condition. You've been set aside. You, you've been interrupted. And God is now over here doing something with the Gentiles. He's showing mercy on whom he... Show, they shouldn't have been shocked, but yet they were. They were, they were agitated. 
they raise these objections. And Paul, again, is going to remind them, hey, remember Moses. Okay? Now in verse 17, this is where we were last time, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. I think we ended uh, last week looking at Pharaoh. I want to go back in and look at him a little closer because there's a second answer to this, to this objection. The first answer is he can be merciful to whom he wants to be merciful. I mean, you think about, think about a mortgage, you know, on your house. You have a contractual agreement with the bank to pay every month the amount due. What happens when you miss a month or two or three or six or so? What, what do they have a right to do to you? To take it, foreclose. Now, the bank could go in and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to forgive that, and we're going to do something else. They could do that. They have, why? Because they're the guy owning the contract. You can't say, hey, I think you ought to just forgive that. But they can do what? We can forgive. That's what God's being merciful. He owns the contract. And he looks over and he says, you violated it. But I choose to be merciful to you, Israel. I choose to be merciful to you, Gentiles. Now, Paul, in verse 17, he brings up Pharaoh. Now, this goes back to Exodus 9, and we're going to go back there here in just a second. But with Pharaoh, in light of the challenge of God is not being fair, he's being unrighteous, in light of Paul answering that with the issue of he can be merciful to whom he wants to be merciful. Remember your past. Look to Moses and, and after the Red Sea event and the Exodus. But now there's also something else, Israel, that you need, to rem you need to know. There's also something here now, church, the body of Christ, you need to know. So now there's going to be a very great parallel brought in for us today. And the issue, look at verse 17. The issue here is that God has a secondary purpose. That's the second answer. First one is be merciful to whom I be merciful. Second is, is I have another purpose that's happening. Look at verse 17. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Why? That I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And we'll look at verse 18 next time. God has a secondary person, purpose, sorry. So don't say he's being unfair. If he's now revealing through Paul a secondary person purpose for the I need to change my note because I, I have person written there. <laughs> He's got a secondary purpose for this issue with the reason of him dealing with Israel the way he did. Back in Exodus 9, but also now in today. And that secondary issue here is really what's going to happen. Come back with me to Exodus 9. Let's just begin to look at it. To Pharaoh here, he, he, he said, Paul brings them back to Pharaoh because there's something happening with Pharaoh, okay, Exodus 9, that Israel didn't get when they were going through the moment, through it, 
But now through the revelation given to the Apostle Paul, as you look back, you can, say, you can see it. So, so, so could Israel. And we're going to spend the morning because I think it's critical that you see this. Exodus 9, verse 16, is the quote that Paul quotes. And in every deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. God is not dealing with the historical Pharaoh here, okay? Now, he is talking to the historic Pharaoh, but there's something behind that's happening and, and that's what we talked about last time there's someone there's a there's a power a spiritual power that's behind pharaoh and what god's going to do now he's going to talk to the historic pharaoh remember we looked in in ezekiel there and where he talks to the prince of tyrus and the king of tyrus and he says to the king of tyrus you were there in the garden of eden now the the physical king standing there goes i was never there what you talking about you know but and his description of satan and lucifer he's not talking to the king he's talking to the power behind so god's not sp speaking he's not simply dealing with the historic figure that that was responsible for the bondage and for the slavery of his people He's really now beginning to deal with the real power behind Pharaoh, that the adversary. And that's why Paul brings up Pharaoh. And that's why we can begin to see a parallel here. Because Pharaoh, now you think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh in the eyes of the Egyptians is a reincarnation of their god Horus. Okay, H-O-R-U-S, if you need to know how to spell it. So for... You know, everybody, about the pyramids over there, how did, he, he did that? how did they get him to do this and that? How did they figure that out? Well, they weren't dummies. They weren't cavemen, you know. <laughs> they just weren't. They were very, actually very smart, you know, and very intellectual for their day. But the thing is, is think of, you know, some will say, well, he used the Jews to do it and the slaves or other people. But you think about this. If... You believe that Pharaoh is God, and God says, we're going to build the pyramid. What are you going to do as an Egyptian? You're going to volunteer to do what? Obey what, the God, what your God said and go do it. Rather than a, in, a forced labor, there's a voluntary labor. You see, okay, why? Because the Egyptians looked at Pharaoh as that reincarnation of their main God. So God is not dealing with just the man. He's dealing really with the power behind Pharaoh the man. Now look at verse 16. We just read it. He says, and, and, in, every, and, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up. Now the theologians out there in Christendom, and that's D-U-M-B, okay, they get all this thing about him raising him up and, oh, see, before the foundation of the world, God is going to raise up Pharaoh to do this, and he has all of this stuff, and he, he's coming along, and he deliberately created Pharaoh to do this, to do evil. And in a minute, we'll see a verse here, uh, actually next time, where he sinned greater. And see, God created the sin and all this stuff. And you know what? That's just tomfoolery. That actually comes from a place of ignorance. 
of not understanding how God, God loves free will. He gave it to man because that's an attribute of himself. Genesis 1, when he creates man in his image and his likeness, he gives man free will. Scripture's full of free will. You get a choice in the matter. That's that thing there in, in, in back there. Hold on to Exodus. Run back to Romans 9. Yeah, I, I hope, I haven't really, you know, touched on, go back there to Romans 9. A lot of this as we've gone through it, and, and I didn't, I haven't because I just, I didn't think it may be necessary, but look at verse 16, 916. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of who? But of God. You see, God's mercy, God's eternal purpose and plan is going to be accomplished whether you decide to be a part of it or not. Okay? When he says there, so then it is not of him that willeth. We, I, I know we looked at this last time. You go over there to Ephesians 3. There is not, he's going to get it done whether you will it or not. If you beg, go back to Exodus 9. If you ask him to be merciful, he's going to be merciful not because you ask him, but because he's a merciful God. So as we go through this, let's stop the bad thinking the Calvinistic, the covenant theology, the reform doctrine, because I'll be honest with you, I've studied these guys for a long time. I've had a lot of conversations with Calvinists, five-pointers, two-pointers, one-pointer, all this stuff. And you know what they do? They twist the verses. They, make, they twist this idea. They got this ideology that they move the Scripture to match. And if you're going to be honest with Scripture, you can't do that. Okay? So they take terms like election and elect, and they redefine it, and they make it into something that it's not. If you, if you believe that election has to do with salvation, then you make the Lord Jesus Christ a sinner, based upon Isaiah 42. You make him a sinner. Well, I'm not going to do that, so then election doesn't ha has to do with something else. It has to do with service. Because that same verse, that same passage where the Lord, the Father, calls the Son, mine elect, talks about him being a servant. So, you know, see, so when you come to Scripture, it begins to say stuff completely different than what the theologians and the, and the preachers say, okay? And, I mean, I, anyway, so when he says raised up here, God doesn't deliberately create Pharaoh for this. Pharaoh showed up because of it was Pharaoh showing up. Now look at verse 16, 916, Exodus 916. I have raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may declare throughout all the earth. At this time, Pharaoh is going to be the very vehicle that's going to be used by God to accomplish something. Actually, two things. To accomplish a demonstration of his power and that his name may be declared throughout all the earth. So Pharaoh's going to be used to bring honor and glory to God. And Pharaoh's going to do it not knowing, not realizing he's what? Doing it. Does that sound like somebody else? Look over with me at Isaiah. I just, um, you know, get to teaching and get off the... Look at Isaiah chapter 10. 
Look at Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10. Look at verse 5. Isaiah 10, 5. Prophetic scripture here about the Assyrian in time, but actually becomes the Antichrist out there in the future. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath, and I will give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now watch verse 7. How be it, he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. This guy's going to do stuff not realizing that God's using him to do it. He's doing, verse 5 and 6, just because that's what he, he doesn't like the Jews, he doesn't like Israel, he doesn't like the little flock, he's persecuting them. Verse 7, but in his heart, he, verse 7, howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. You see, the Lord's going to use this guy, and by the way, the Assyrian, go back there to Exodus 9, he's one of the major types of the Antichrist in scriptures. There's 18 of them. The first one listed in that 18 is Pharaoh here in Egypt, here in Exodus 19. So Pharaoh, Exodus 9, is going to be used here to accomplish some things. He's going to be personally challenged by the God of the universe, by God Almighty, and he says, and God says, here's what I, I, here's why you're in that position. And you're in that position because I gotta, I'm going to deal with the adversary, and you're the representative. Remember last week we looked over there how this Pharaoh, uh, and, and he doesn't know uh, Joseph, or um, he, he doesn't know Joseph, Chapter 1, verse 8, and we went over to Isaiah 52, verse 4, and he's a usurper, okay? So he's a picture of the adversary. Look over at chapter 14 of Exodus, Exodus 14. Uh, again, uh, just about the raising up of Pharaoh here, Exodus 14, 4. 14, 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh. And upon all his host, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now, next week we'll look at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, because that's that that gets used in Romans nine greatly. Okay, actually misused, I should say. But what I want you to see is, I will be honored upon Pharaoh. God is going to take a rebellious individual, and He's going to use him to bring honor to Himself. Verse 17, and I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honor upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall, I, shall know that I am the Lord, Jehovah, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to, the idea here is Pharaoh was raised up to this position, to this place in the moment as the king. So he's going to be used by God to do what? Bring honor to him. 
demonstrate his power. That'll be the ten plagues. Those ten plagues attack the ten major gods of the Egyptians. And then he's going to bring and exalt his name throughout all the earth. Uh, come over to Ezekiel 29. You, by the way, you know that that's what happens. You remember Rahab, the, the, the harlot there? Uh, when, uh, Jeric, when the two spies come in, Ezekiel 29, the two spies come in and she says, Hey, we've heard about your God and uh, I'm going to bless you so you bless me. <laughs> and she claims the Abrahamic covenant on them. And they do that. Why? Because it's going to go out throughout all the earth. Exodus 29, notice something here, verse 1. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 29, thank you. Ezekiel 29, verse 1. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, in the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Now, this is not the Pharaoh of Exodus. This is, this is Ezekiel, way down, the, uh, you know, several hundred years later. And he's talking to who? Far he's talking about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Verse 3, speak and say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, watch, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of the rivers which hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Notice, notice how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is now being associated with a great dragon that's living in a river. Okay? Now, most people will say that this river is the River Nile, and I'll say, no, it's not, because there's another event coming in Exodus where they cross the Red Sea, and there's some things that are happening there that are deeper. Look over at chapter 32. Chapter 32. It's just kind of look at the language here in association with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This Pharaoh that he's talking to in Ezekiel is future. He hadn't happened yet. Here, but who does God say for Ezekiel to talk to? Let's talk to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look at chapter 32. Verse number 1, And it came to pass in the twentieth year, in the twelfth month, in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say unto him, Thou art like a young lion of the nations, and thou art as a whale in the seas. And thou camest forth with thy rivers, and troublest the waters with thy feet, and foulest their rivers. Again, notice how Pharaoh, we got him as a great dragon in the, in the river. Now he's described as a whale in the sea. Come over to Psalms 74. Psalms 74. <clears throat> Psalms 74. Again, he's not talking about the guy, the man. He's talking about the adversary, the power, that spiritual power that's behind the scene. Paul in Ephesians 2 calls it the course of this world, and that it's operated by the prince, the power of the air. Look at Psalm 74, verse 13. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. 
thou breakest the, the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Notice how now we got a great dragon, we got a whale, now we've got dragons in the water, and we got this guy named Leviathan. We got some sea monsters coming up. Uh, you're in Psalms. Run back to Job 41. <laughs> so what he's talking about here isn't the peep, the person. He's talking about that spiritual battle that's going on behind the scenes. There's a spiritual warfare, Job 41, that's raging in the universe here between God and Satan, the adversary. And he's going to use Pharaoh to demonstrate some things to Satan, but then also to demonstrate some things to Israel. And then Paul comes along and says, hey guys, remember Pharaoh and what he did back over here? That's really now for, look at what he's doing today. And there's a parallel here. Job 41.1, canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down. By the way, the Leviathan, everybody thinks that's the knock-kneed monster dude, you know, and it's not, okay? <laughs> they, they use a Greek and a Hebrew word and all this goofy stuff. I've read the books and the articles, and it's like, again, play with the words. Don't let it just say, what is this guy? Well, verse 34, he beholdeth all things. He is a... A king over all the children of what? Pride. Isn't that interesting? What a title. By the way, the rest of chapter 41 describes the, the adversary. In Job 40, you have, a, you have a guy show up called a behemoth. Most of the notes will say that means an elephant. No, it doesn't. A behemoth, when you study out the word and the etymology, talks about a composite beast. Do you know a composite beast? How about in Revelation 13? There's a beast that's made up of a leopard and a lion. and a, uh, there, There's your behemoth. So we're talking about the adversary. We're talking about the Antichrist, see? We're talking about Leviathan here. And how does it end? It ends with him being king over the children of pride. Now, He's a spiritual being. Come over with me to Isaiah 27. And understanding what God is doing with Pharaoh helps Israel. But again, it also helps us to understand that God has a right to deal with the satanic policy of evil, with the adversary in a spiritual battle. And just as he's dealing with it with Israel He's going he's gonna to use Pharaoh to exalt his name where? In the earth. What is he doing with you and I? He's dealing with the adversary, and he's going to use the adversary to exalt his name in the heavenly places. How does he do that? He installs the church, the body of Christ there. He's got the right to do it. So yeah, Israel, God's not being unfair with you because he can mercy to whom he want mercy, but he's got another purpose here, and that's dealing with the adversary in a meaningful manner. And Israel, you need to get it, but church, the body of Christ, you need to get it. Look at Isaiah 27, look at verse 1. Isaiah 27, 1, here's Leviathan. In that day the Lord 
with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that's in the sea. Revelation says he's the crooked, he's the devil. This is who we're talking about here. He, Pharaoh has a connection with a dragon in the sea, a whale in the sea, Leviathan. And again, that's who, come over to chapter 51, who God is dealing with. And this is why Paul's bringing this up, because the Jews over here in Paul's day, no, no, he's being unfair. And Paul's like, dude, you missed something here. (laughs) And dude is my word, okay? You've missed something here. You've missed what God's doing. Then you and I come along, and we talk about right division and how to understand your Bible and just you know, and rejoicing in who you are in Christ. And people, oh, no, blah, 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 blah. you know, you, you guys are anti-Semitic. You're this, you're that. And we're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, slow down, man. You're missing something here. You're missing what God's doing. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old, Art thou not in that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? So Rahab here isn't the harlot. This is something different. Because it's associated with what? Cutting the dragon down. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, and hath made the depths of, of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over. That's a reference to the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. Who's the ransom? There's the nation of Israel. What did he do at the Red Sea? He dried that thing up, didn't he? One of the greatest miracles ever to happen in Israel's history was they, they leave Egypt, they come down, and... They come to that, and Moses raises, and the waters part, and they go over on dry ground. By the way, Moses, or the Lord, or Paul, in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, says that we're all passed under the sea. We're all baptized under Moses. Do you realize that Israel's first baptism was a dry baptismal? It had no water. It was dry ground. Then what happens? They get all on the other side. 1.2 or uh, 1.5 million people get all on the other side. Pharaoh comes rushing in. And what happens? The ground congeals. And there's literally an opening into the pit of hell in that place there where they cross the sea. And, and they, Moses says, see your salvation, Israel, as they see the rider and his horse, what? Destroy. Rider and his horse goes back to Revelation 6 where they're with those four horsemen and everything. Why? Because there it is. It's a picture. You following all this? Paul's like, guys, don't miss what's going on here. When God dealt with Pharaoh, he's doing it because he's dealing with the guy behind the scene, the spiritual being. Come over to Psalms 89 about Rahab here. I just, the the stuff, it just flows. Psalms 89. I I talked to a guy a couple years ago, and he's like, boy, the Bible's just hard to understand. I go, no, it's not really. 
when you let it say what it says and just read it, it's pretty clear. But the problem with this guy, when I was talking to, he didn't want to give the word of God the, you know, the accolade that it should as being the word of God. He wanted it to be Shakespearean literature type stuff. Well, then it's not going to make sense. Psalms 89. Look at verse 9. Psalms 89, 9. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Now, we see the Lord do that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with the storm. Now, watch verse 10. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces. As one that is slain, thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. Do you see that issue of the raging seas, the spiritual issues there? What they say back there in Isaiah? You come up and you stir the seas up and you get them all going, talking about the adversary. The Lord comes in, calms them. But what does he do to Rahab in verse 10? Breaks her up. And again, that's not Rahab and Jericho back there. This is talking about the Leviathan. This is talking about the adversary. That, the name, come over to Hosea, chapter 2, Hosea. Hosea is a great book. Anyway, Rahab, that name, carries a, a, a literal meaning of the proud one, the boaster. So when you think about who is he the king of, Job 41, he's king of the children of pride. What got Lucifer? Pride. And he's the boss of it. He's the king of it. He's the ruler of it. Hosea, the book of Hosea, he, 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 Hosea is told to go marry Gomer, who's a harlot. And again, this Hosea 2, it is all a picture of the spiritual condition in Israel. Okay? And, and the, the prophecy here that, that's working Hosea 2, verse 14. Hosea 2, 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. So the I is God. The her is Israel. And bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope and she shall sing there, okay? So this future restoration of Israel is going to happen. Now watch. As in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. The, see that issue of the days of her youth, and she comes up out of the land of Egypt? All of the prophetic scriptures usually go back to when? when they came out of Egypt. Well, how did they get out of Egypt? They had to deal with who? With Pharaoh. Okay? So you've got this. By the way, you go on and read down the rest of that passage there, and you see where he remarries her, Israel. She's gone off into spiritual adultery. He's cut her off. Chapter 1, they're not my people, and I'm not their God. Now she's, it's time to come back into the kingdom. It's kind of time to come back. And he goes out and he does the new covenant aspects with her. And he remarries her and brings in, by the way, who's he remarrying? Not the apostate nation, but that little flock, the true Israel of God. Because what's happened to the apostate nation? 
Well, if you're with us on Mark, study on Mark on Wednesday night, they've been, they're going, they have, they're the chaff that's cast into the unquenchable fire. Anyway, I digress. Come back with me to Exodus, Exodus 12. So the days of youth, at, when they, she brought us out of Egypt. So what God is doing in Exodus is a dress rehearsal for what God will ultimately do in the future. And there's many other verses just for time. You can go to Micah 7, the days of old. You can go, you take that phrase, days of her youth and days of old, and you can just run all through the scriptures. Exodus 12. Go to Exodus 12. And you will see that. Okay? So what God's doing in Exodus with Pharaoh is a dress rehearsal. It's a picture of what he's ultimately going to do out in the future to the adversary. That's why Paul brings up Pharaoh. Here he is. He's the baseline. Exodus 12, if you look there, Exodus 12 and verse number 12, Exodus 12, 12, this is the night of the Passover. It's happened. The, all of the firstborn of Israel, and, I'm sorry, of Egypt and, and Israel, really, there, there are ten plagues. The first couple deal with Israel. This last one deals. The rest of them deal with Egypt. Okay? And he says in 12.12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So when he does all of this, he's doing it against who? All the gods of Egypt. That spiritual conflict is what's happening. Now, in the moment, historically, are they suffering? Oh, yeah. But what's God really doing? The stuff behind the scenes, okay? Now, come over to chapter 15 of Exodus. Exodus 15, verse 11. Mm. Well, you know what? Let's just go back to chapter 5. Let's just go back to the start. Exodus 5. Well, you know what? You better go look at that. Go back to 15. I'm sorry. You got to see. I'm, it just, it's looking at the clock and trying to figure out. There's just so much to this. Exodus 15. Look at verse 11. All right. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Notice it's a little g, so the pagan gods, Egypt. Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchedest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Well, there's the crossing the Red Sea. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. That verse over there in what we just read, he led the redeemed across. Thou hast guided them in thy strength into thy holy habitation. And the people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestinia. That's what he's going to do in the day of deliverance. That's what he's doing now in time historically, but it is what he's going to do in the future. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and 
ever. Now come back to chapter 5. So regardless of what you think you can do, what's going to happen? God's, is gonna, God's plan and purpose is going to come through. Look at Exodus 5. Now in Exodus 5, you have Moses has come back to Egypt. Moses, he gets the prophecy, he goes out there, he kills the Egyptian, he's going to deliver, and he has run out of town. He spends some 40, 30, 40 years on the back desert. He comes back now. Now it's time. Verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh. Look at, they told Pharaoh. They don't ask him. They don't ask for permission. They do what? They tell him. It's very important here. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. So what did they go tell, what did they tell Pharaoh? God said, what? Let my people go. Okay, now watch Pharaoh, watch the response. And Pharaoh said, whoa, yeah, you got it, man. Have a nice day. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Notice the response is what? One of unbelief. And they said, the, the God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go. We pray thee three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. That's why we want to go. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye? Moses and Aaron let the people from their, notice this now, works, Get ye, get you into your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of this land, of the land, now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmaster of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick, as hitherto let them go and gather straw for themselves and the tail of the bricks. And what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh looks at them and says, dude, you want to go on a three-day vacation, three-day weekend. I think you're being a little lazy and you're sitting around doing nothing. So, hey, taskmasters, let's intensify this. They can't have straw. They can't have the, the material they need to build and do. And he begins to put the screws to the servants. He begins to intensify the persecution and the suffering. Verse 11. Go ye, get your straw where ye can find it, yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. He just keeps going more and more. And you know what happens? Moses gets all shook up here. Moses gets rattled. He's like, look, Lord, I, chapter 6, verse 1. Now the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. You know what happens? By the way, chapter 5, look there at verse 15. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto who? Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servant? Why are you doing this to us? Verse 17, but he said, ye are idle, ye are idle, therefore ye say, let us go and do sacrifice. See how Pharaoh says, you guys came up here and petitioned to have a three-day weekend, and uh -uh, it ain't going to happen. Verse 22, and Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, 
Wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people, neither hath thou delivered thy people at all. You see, Moses is, is missing something here. By the way, the Israel, the leaders of Israel, they come and accuse Moses. What did you do this to us for? Moses is rattled. He's like, God, I went in, I told Pharaoh, let my people go. And you know what Pharaoh did? He turned the workload up. He intensified everything. Now they're mad at me. What is going on here? He's missing something. So God's going to say, okay, here's what, here's 6-1. Here's why the delay. Yes, he's going to let your, let them go. And he's actually going to drive them out. He's going to help push them out the door when I'm done with him. But you need to understand something, Moses. We're not leaving right away. And literally what the Lord is doing here in Israel's history is he's creating this delay precedent where the Lord will say, we're going to do this, but before we do it, we're going to go do this. Then he'll come along and he'll say, we're going to do this, but before that, we're going to do this. The Lord does it in his earthly ministry. He goes along, he's doing miracles, he's doing all this stuff. They think the kingdom's coming right then, and he says, nope, there's going to be a delay, because <laughs> I've got to go and die. They go, not so, Lord, no. Well, there's going to be a delay because I have to accomplish Calvary. Once Calvary's accomplished, then we're on. And he begins to teach. And what literally happens here is Moses is going to be educated now about the delay. Verse 2, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. So Moses you know, he's a little rattled. He's shook up. He's not quite understanding what's happening. And now the Lord is beginning to educate him. By the way, Aaron joins the, the core, doesn't he? Because Moses is, I would imagine that Moses frustrated God greatly. Because he's the guy, and yet he's over there going, I'm not a, I don't speak in public very well. I can't do this. You have to do this. I can't do this, but you have to do And And finally, you know, the Lord, you know the Lord just like, you know, with a little kid. Just knock it off. All right, take your brother, you know. Let your brother help you, you know. And off they go. And what do they do? They go into Moses, right? All right they go into Pharaoh. What's Pharaoh do? What's Moses do? Throws down the snake. The, the rod makes a king snake. Pharaoh goes, I can duplicate that. I can outdo it. And he does two to one. And what happens? Moses, now all of a sudden, we'll talk about some of this next week. All of this stuff is going on here. And it all starts because there's going to be a delay. And what, what did God tell Moses to tell Pharaoh ultimately? Let my people go. And yet, what happened? Ten plagues. By the way, they don't happen all overnight. They actually take several months. They take time. Now come over to Ephesians 1. Is there a delay in the fulfillment of Israel's program in Exodus? Yes, there is. What was the, what was the part of the program to be fulfilled? Let my people go, and yet there's a delay. Now ultimately, they're let go. Okay, 
So then the question with Paul in Romans 9, I need you in Ephesians 1, is there a delay today in the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic program? Yes, there is. How long is this delay? It's a temporary one. It's been going on for a little over 2,000 years, but it's temporary. It's not permanent. Peter in Acts 15 said God is visiting the Gentiles. A visit is just that. You know, it's not moving in, staying. It's a visit. Now look at Ephesians 1. Why Paul is showing Pharaoh to you and I and drawing the parallel, why he's quoting in Romans 9 the thing there in, in Exodus 9 about showing my power and proclaiming my name in the earth is to remind Israel, bring her back to where God delayed the program, set the precedent, delayed, because he had another purpose. He had something else he had to get done with Pharaoh, and that is deal with the spiritual entity that's behind Pharaoh, that's pushing and pulling the strings. So now he's right. He's, it's legitimate for God to do what today? To delay Israel's program once again so that he can now come over here and deal with the spiritual adversary once again. Follow that? Ephesians 1 verse 9, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. The revelation given to the Apostle Paul made known something, didn't it? What is it making known? The, the mystery of his will. The his, there's the Father. His will, which he, according to his what? Good pleasure, which he hath purposed where? In himself. Paul, in the past... God was making his name known in the earth through his dealing with Pharaoh and through the nation of Israel. And today, he's going to make his name known in the heavenly places, and he's got something else to do. That's what verse 10 is about. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. He's got those two agencies now. Prior to Paul in Acts 9, there is no two agencies. There's just the one. So what does he have to do? Before he can wrap up the fulfillment of the prophetic scripture, he says what? I'm going to delay that so I can come and do this because now I am dealing with the adversary. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And because I'm dealing with the adversary, Philippians 2 verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Where is his name to be glorified? In heaven and in earth and under the earth. Everywhere. By the way, Heaven, body of Christ, earth, nation of Israel, believing Gentiles in Israel's program. Under the earth is the lake of fire. 
That's why the verses that say there's no more sea and talking about the new heaven and the earth, what's under the earth now? Lake of fire. What's the lake of fire going to know? Oh, he's the man, and we blew it, and we missed it. Come back over to Ephesians 3. You see, when Paul brings up Pharaoh, he's doing it really for, with two purposes. One, to remind Israel, but then two, for you and I to come along and say, wait a minute, we see what he's doing with Pharaoh, which is defeating the adversary. What is he doing with you and I? Defeating the adversary. Ephesians 3, verse 11. According to the, notice, eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. What kind of purpose is this? It's eternal. There's nothing you can do that's going to stop it. Now, what, what's he going to do? Verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who hath created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Look at that. He now is confronting the heavenly host. In Israel's program, he's confronting Pharaoh, the guy, the earthly. Now, he's confronting the heavenly host. Ephesians 6 calls them the rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, he's doing what? Confronting the heavenly host. So, why the delay today? Back to Romans 9. Why the delay today? Why talk about Pharaoh? Because God is now making known to the adversary. Come over to Colossians chapter 2. God is now making known to the adversary by the church, the body of Christ, his what? Manifold wisdom. And what is realizing, Colossians 2 verse 15, what the adversary is realizing is that he just lost the heavens. Colossians 2.15. And having spoiled principality and powers. Spoiled. Well, when do the spoils of war come? In the beginning of war or at the end of the war? At the end, he spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And the it there is nailing it to his cross, the end of verse 14. What does Paul's revelation do? Here's what Calvary means. And what Calvary means is that adversary, you lost. Go back there to Ephesians 3. You lost in verse 21. God, just as an exodus, confronting Satan, today he's confronting Satan as well, but he's using the church, the body of Christ, to accomplish it. Back in Exodus, he used Moses and Aaron. Today, he's using his ambassadors. Confronting. Could you, the, the, the most shocked creature in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus was not Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Because Saul says, who art thou? <laughs> and he's like, don't say Lord, don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus, you know. He knows, who art thou, Lord? He knows who he's talking to. The most shocked creature on the road to Damascus was the adversary. Because now the revelation of the truth, the manifold wisdom of God about the heavenly places is going to be made known. 
And when that happened, he's like, uh-oh, I just lost. Now we'll go to battle. Uh, Ephesians 3, verse 21, Unto him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all the ages, world without end. So when you come back to Romans 9, it's time to quit. God is being honored and glorified today by what he's doing with the Gentiles in creating this new humanity, new creature. And through that entity, that new entity, he's making his eternal purpose known. And that's really why Romans 9 and 10 and 11 are so important in our understanding. Because we're understanding of what God's, why God has delayed Israel's program. He did it before. To do what? To accomplish something. Secondary purpose. And he's, and again, he does it again and again and again. Just today he's delayed it, and it's really for a more grander reason, because now he's going to move to the heavenly places. Now we'll look next time at verse 18 about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, because that's important to grasp too, because again, these verses get misused. So why does Paul use Pharaoh to show Israel, look, he's got a secondary purpose to deal with the adversary, to show the church the body of Christ. You see what he did there? He's doing the same thing with us in dealing with the adversary. Okay? As so. You go see what he's doing over there? He's doing that today as well. Okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your, in your Son, for the all spiritual blessings and for the completeness. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.